for socialist ideas in action. I'm Josh Frame, Spring member and co-host of the Spring Radio podcast. Today's episode is about the ongoing genocide in Gaza and the urgent need for a ceasefire, as well as an end to the occupation of Palestine by the Israeli state. We're devastated by what's happening. More children have been killed in three weeks than all global conflict annually since 2019. The death toll has reached 10,000, and that doesn't even take into account the deaths that are unaccounted for, and the wider ongoing siege in which 2 million have been left without water, food and fuel. Despite the complicity of mainstream media and Western governments, calls for a ceasefire have been increasing, and demonstrations continue to grow in cities across Canada and across the world. A recent poll by Angus Reid found that two-thirds of Canadians agree that a ceasefire needs to be called immediately. And so it's important that we continue to turn up the pressure on our so-called leaders so that they're forced to do what's right. In this episode, you'll hear more about what we can do to make a ceasefire a reality. We're bringing to you three voices on this from Spring's meeting on the 2nd of November who, well, I'll let them speak for themselves. They are Daniel Majid, Palestinian activist and lawyer with the Arab Canadian Lawyers Association, Suzanne Weiss, Holocaust survivor, author, activist, and James Clark, Spring member and organizer. You'll also hear a poem from a vigil for Gaza and chants from a recent rally calling for a ceasefire. I know everyone knows uh, a lot of the background, so I'm not gonna go into it, but you know, you know there's a bit of deja vu here uh, because this is the fifth war or fifth assault on Gaza that we've seen. Uh, or have lived through uh, since 2009. Past governments would sort of say those kind of nice, warm and fuzzy Western liberal uh, speak. You know, this particular government uh, does not and tells us exactly what they speak. They were campaigning in the election on, you know, platforms of genocide, of uh, bringing in another Nakba. They have never hidden this attention. You know, we've seen the use of language towards Palestinians as human animals, as cancer, as vermin. We see settlers running around the West Bank, uh, destroying property, killing uh, villagers, and putting out notices saying leave or a second, you know, a second Nakba will come. Not surprising, Canada is on the wrong side of history again. We, on Friday, there was a UN vote at the General Assembly, 121 uh, states versus 14 states. Um, called for a ceasefire and you know Canada abstained in the face of genocide uh, abstaining is complicity to a crime 
from the Arab Canadian lawyers point of view uh, or, or work, uh, we have been absolutely alarmed and astonished at the level of anti-Palestinian racism that has been perpetrated against our community and the allies and those who advocate for uh, Palestinian human rights. Uh, we've seen politicians you know, facing political reprisals. Employees and students are all feeling very silenced and threatened if they are openly in support of Palestine. With the TMU law students and their statements, there's been a push now to prevent them from either graduating or having them expelled or get, prevent them from getting called to the bar. But despite the law of profession being one of the most you know, conservative and uh, not mobilizing, I have been you know, astonished by the amount of law, uh, mobilizing that has been happening within the legal community. Uh, and it's great. There's a lot of people who care about social justice who are going to law school and uh, using those skills to support those who are being disciplined and attacked. There's a couple of things that are happening that I want to draw your attention to. And I'll let James talk more about the Ceasefire Now Coalition. But, you know, this this has been something that I have been working with James on to ensure that we get a cr- like a cross-sectoral um, movement happening where we can sort of, you know, make the biggest impact to try to, you know, try to convince government that they're the ones in the minority and us as labor unionists or professors or teachers or nurses, doctors, whoever, that regardless where we are, you know, we are calling for an immediate ceasefire and an end to the occupation of Palestine. This work is, uh, you know, we all feel like there's an urgency to the work, um, It is, you know, you want to move as quickly as possible, but we also are trying to move as strategically as possible because we want to make sure that we put forward the best campaign we have to make sure that we make it difficult for those who want to attack us and tear us down for it. It's involved a lot of reaching out uh, through networks that we've already had. And I think it's important to know that you know, working on Palestine, it's not an assault from assault to assault type of work. It's a long game approach. So the the work that's been done by many of us in the Palestinian community uh, who have built those relationships over the years uh, with, you know, religious groups, with the unions, with academia, with the arts community, uh, you know, those are all, and of course the activist groups, uh, those are, you know, those relationships have come into play and We've used the trust that we built with those uh, different communities to bring them into this coalition. You know, again, having done this work for a while, what was really amazing is that uh, the uptake was very quick. Um, and I, with each campaign, we noticed the uptake is getting quicker and quicker. Uh, so in a matter of weeks, there's about 200 organizations that have come on board and to show their support. The amount of convincing is... Uh, is uh, Oh, yay. <laughs> Uh, it hasn't been as hard to convince people. We, you know, we put these calls out, and people want to help. There is a thirst for people to get involved, and this mass movement, having this big show, which is happening in other cities, which we've done before during the Iraq War, we had those mass mobilizations of people on the street, and it did, I think, play a significant role in keeping us out of that war. Uh, so, you know, and within those 
you know, within those institutions, when the ask goes out, would you join this coalition? It forces those institutions to also have internal discussions themselves and to recommit themselves internally to be part of the Palestinian movement. And, you know, because of that, we have seen those statements coming out, uh, you know, just saying they stand on the side of the oppressed and uh, oppose all forms of oppression, including uh, the oppression of the Palestinian people. But, you know, the, the other thing to remember is, you know, there are, there are other movements happening in Palestine on, on the international level, and that's the BDS movement. This is something that we, you know, that has been going on for, uh, you know, quite some time now. It has made significant gains. It is the long game, or has been playing the long game in terms of mobilizing, again, on all different fronts. There is a sense of urgency, so there are short-term actions that are definitely important, but we have to remember that strategy is critical and thinking about the long-term and how we are contributing to a greater movement, uh, not just in Toronto, but outside of Toronto. Um, and I guess maybe last thing you know, I, I, I should mention is, you know, we are right now, Gaza is definitely the urgency, but we can't forget what's happening in the West Bank. And the genocide is extending to the West Bank and... Uh, you know, in the village where my family uh, is from, there's a, a village right next right next to it. I mean, they're, they're two tiny villages, and they, also, they kind of make up almost one bigger village. And two weeks ago, settlers came in and killed four, four villagers and then killed two more at the funeral the next day. So this is a difficult time. Settler, uh, villagers in Palestine, in the West Bank, this is the olive harvest season time. We've seen olive harvesters uh, be killed this week as well. We're seeing trees burned down, uh, and we, we are seeing the genocidal messages from, from the settlers. The Israeli government has given settlers machine guns and essentially imp and impunity, which are probably the two deadliest weapons. So, you know, in talking about what's happening in Palestine, we cannot forget what's happening in in. Uh, the West Bank and the ethnic cleansing that's happening in Jerusalem as well. So I think I'll just leave it at that and then we can have a, a more fulsome discussion. My name is Suzanne Weiss. I am very, very honored to be here amongst you. We supporters of the Palestinian freedom a movement, have followed the Israeli war and their program of so-called mowing the lawn before the 7th of October, 2023. And we've been horrified by these attempts of Israel to terrorize the Palestinians as struggling for their freedom. The Palestinians have tried every which way to defend themselves. They only have sticks and stones. They got a right to find allies to help them in their struggle. They've got a right, we all have a right, to find allies to help us to freedom. The Israelis answered these sticks and stones by shooting 
their kneecaps, the kneecaps of a whole new youth generation, and with daily bombardments of their homes 25 miles long, it's unimaginable. Ilian Pape, a celebrated Jewish historian, said, referring to the event of October 7th, and I quote, we lose our moral compass if we take an event and analyze it without understanding its history and its consequences. In other words, as socialists, we must judge in the context of the history of the class struggle. The events of October 7 took place in the context of a history of colonial occupation by Israelis dating back to 1947, which could not exist without the full support of the United States. And that's become so evident if anybody ever questioned it. The genocide of Palestinians began with the Nakba of 1947, and it has mounted to a full and naked war today. It threatens to develop a war against the Arab nations, and perhaps even further, because it's a war of colonial occupation. In the Jewish Holocaust, which I survived, the Jewish people organized an armed resistance. And we, our allies was anybody and everybody who stood with us. No questions. We agreed on one thing, liberation from Nazism, liberation from racism. The most important issue was unity not only among Jews, it was the unity of the French people because that's where I was in France. Not all of them, but many. Liberation from Nazi colonial project was entirely a different story from the Palestinian one, but survival and victory was successful due to solidarity against the Nazis. The world's unity and insistence on ceasefire and ending the occupation today are crucial. The tools of boycott, divestment, and sanctions, as Danya said, are actually very vital. And the unions, if you belong to a union, should be approached with this tool and this campaign so that we can have an impact on Israel's economy and society. Today, Jewish people, wherever they are in the world, are in the forefront of the solidarity demonstrations. Because Israel commits the crimes against the Palestinians in the name of Jewish people. We say not in our name. 
not in our name. Judaism is opposed to racism, yet the occupation, the systematic war of destruction is done in our name. That is an unforgivable crime, an unforgivable Zionist crime against the Jewish people, against the Palestinian people, against humanity. It's the violation of solidarity of the world's peoples. Here in Canada, politicized stances taken by the Canadian leaders, so-called leaders, have not advanced peace in the region. They, they're, they're the lapdogs, if you want to call them that, of the United States. There's no question about that. Instead, they've deepened divisions amongst Canadians. That's their role. That's what they want to do, divide Canadians, divide and rule. As Jews, we, have, we are devastated by Israel's actions, not only because we care about the Palestinians. They are our cousins. As human beings, but also because our safety, our so-called safety, is being used to justify indiscriminate violence. This warped argument has been used to fuel 75 years of the Nakba occupation and apartheid, the safety of Israel, of the so-called, well, as they say, the Jews. Anti-Semitism is a serious problem, but it is wrong to characterize those expressing opposition to Israel's government's actions as being anti-Jewish, anti-Semitic. Judaism and Zionism are not the same thing. Zionism is a political ideology that emerged from European colonialism in the 1800s. Judaism is a multifaceted religious, cultural, and ethnic identity. We must support the rights of people to discuss the actions of foreign and domestic governments. We, we do. We do um, discuss and criticize other governments, don't we? Well, why not Israel? Why is it a crime? Why are we anti-Jewish? And uh, we should do that without being vilified or criminalized. Political is expression is central to a free and democratic society supposedly is what we have. Today, we're a diversity of Jewish people who carry the intergenerational trauma of genocide. You'd think that we'd, we'd feel more at peace with ourselves, but we don't. We don't because of Israel and <coughs> their ethnic cleansing. 
With this history of genocide, we stand and act against Netanyahu's goal of the final solution for the Palestinians. Gaza is a concentration camp, the largest concentration camp in the world. It's not just a jail, it's a concentration camp. And it's also a death camp. Auschwitz was our death camp. We died by the ovens. They're dying by starvation. They're dying with the bombs. So the gas chambers have been replaced with bombs, tanks, and white phosphorus, and we say with all our hearts, never again for anyone. As human beings, we must feel. We must make other people feel. We must ex explain to them what's going on. Our unity must include all of us and encompass new recruits against Israel's crimes. Every voice matters, no matter what you can do, small or large, whether you come to many demonstrations or one demonstration or write a letter or sign a petition, whatever you do counts. It's very important. We're struggling for the Palestinians, for our own humanity, and for all humanity. Thank you again for letting me speak to you. Thank you, Suzanne, and thank you, Dania and Dina, and thank you, all of you, for being here tonight. Just listening to Suzanne and Dania talk about what is happening in the world today, it's, it's very easy to feel completely demoralized and not having a sense of what to do, to feel overwhelmed, traumatized. It is, it is horrific what we're watching unfold in the world today. And you think about all the things you learn in school about support for human rights and speaking out and all those things, but we're in a moment where people say, hey, that's genocide, it's like you're fired. Or hey, there's a massacre, or you, you're censored. Right? So everything that we thought we knew about the world or that they're trying to teach us about the world is turned upside down. And so it's not just the trauma of what we're seeing, of what we're hearing from Gazans, from Palestinians themselves, the horrific images we're seeing on social media and on TV that will haunt us for the rest of our lives. But when we try to do something about it, there's an attempt to deny it, to censor it as if it isn't happening. And so it feels right now that it is, or could be an overwhelming moment. But I feel heartened by things like this meeting tonight, to see so many of you here tonight on your own time to be part of this discussion about what we're going to do to be in solidarity with Palestinians as they fight and lead their own liberation. We have to move to a movement that goes from thousands to tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of people. And I'm going to talk a little bit about why that is possible and, and, and maybe even likely. But before that, I want to talk about some principles that 
that inform the strategy and tactics that we use to build a movement. I'm, I identify as a revolutionary socialist, right? Spring is a socialist organization, and we may come from many different traditions here, and we welcome everybody who wants to be united for the struggle for Palestine, and we have this wonderful opportunity to learn from each other, to learn from each other's struggles and each other's traditions. But I'm going to start with four principles that might sound familiar to you. So the first principle is that the agent that has the most potential for real transformation of society is the working class, right, workers. And when we talk about the working class, it's not just people who are in unions. It's anybody who works or would like to work. They may be unemployed. They may be an injured worker. They may be uh, an, uh, an injured or ill worker, whatever. But the working class in all its diversity and entirety, that is the agent that has the greatest potential to transform the world. That's the first one. The second one, when we talk about working class liberation, it is an act of self-emancipation, right? It means workers do it themselves, right? It's not someone else that does it, right? It's all about self-activity. And there's a couple other ways we could talk about this. Ideas change and struggle, right? You learn by doing, right? And another way of saying it is that it's not revolutionaries who make revolutions, it's the working class that makes revolutions. And so we want to be clear about what the division of labor is and why it's so important for workers and ordinary people to be part of those movements. Third principle is the main enemy is at home, right? We think about the struggle against settler colonialism in this country, right? We have to organize against our own state, right? And make sure that the target is our government, right? And hold them accountable for what's happening, uh, for their participation in the complicity of genocide that's underway in Gaza. And that's important for us to think about. And the last one I'll just say, this is something that my comrade Mo uh, Al-Qasim talked about at a talk we recently gave. It's like, what is a key role or job of a revolutionary at a moment like this? And it is to capture a sentiment that exists among all those workers, among the wider public. It's to capture it, it's to shape it, and then it's to give it expression. Right? So we're going to talk a little bit more about what that means. What does it mean to capture a sentiment? If, if widespread numbers of people feel a certain way about something, it doesn't really matter if we don't know how they feel. So we have to find a way to give that sentiment expression so it's visible and we understand what it means, but we also want to find a way to shape it and push it in a particular direction. So those are four points that, for me, inform how I think about strategy and tactics. Our goal has to be to create a political crisis for our government, right? Because we know that the demand for ceasefire is not enough, right? The demand for ceasefire is a tactic, right? It is a tactic about building a mass movement. But in the course of building that mass movement, we need to think about what are all the other demands we want to think about. What's the connection between the demand for ceasefire in this moment and the full and total liberation of all of Palestine? Right? We want to think about how those things are connected. It's not just about achieving ceasefire and going home and saying our job is done. Right? This is about building the capacity of our movement for the long term, the long game that Dania talked about. Right? So how is it that the demand we make now builds the confidence of ordinary people who may not even think of themselves as activists? Maybe they never signed a petition. Maybe they've never been on a demonstration before. Right? What's really radical is to be prepared for the possibility that they will be with us, that if we make it easy for them to join us, they can come to the same conclusions we have, but we don't want to put up any barriers for that because we need a mass movement. 
Now, I want to talk a little bit about a previous moment, a mass movement that happened 20 years ago, which might feel like a million years ago, but for me it feels like it was just yesterday. And it was the movement that emerged in the whole world in the wake of 9-11. And in the wake of 9-11, there was a total decimation of the mass movements that at the time were in their ascendancy. There was this thing called the anti-capitalist movement, the anti-globalization movement. That's where my politics radicalized. And I remember what happened in the wake of 9-11 where everybody was terrified to speak up. There was massive repression of the Muslim community, of racialized communities, of newcomers, all kinds of surveillance bills. You know, people who used to speak out lost their voice. Allies you thought were allies couldn't be found, right? Union leaders are like, this is not the time to be in the streets. It was a very difficult time and it took many, many months to recover from that. But a year after that, in the summer of 2002, people started to organize around what we heard were this, these whispers about WMDs, right? Weapons of mass destruction. And we heard all the intelligence. We had the same assurance as we have now about the intelligence and what was happening in Iraq. And so many people were very scared about what was happening and they began to organize. And there were just like twos and threes or fours and fives. And the actions were like, let's just get a petition. We say we oppose war and sanctions on Iraq. And maybe our first action, we're going to have a little picket of half a dozen people in front of an MP's office. And what happened in the course of the weeks and months of that summer in 2002 is that people started to build the networks, the same networks that Daniel was talking about, networks of trust, people who knew one another, faith groups, unions, people in community groups, people from multi-faith coalitions, people in, you know, who played cards together, right? You know, people who organized in all kinds of different ways started talking about what do we need to do. And in the course of that organizing, coalitions began to emerge in cities. And it wasn't just one group or two groups, but it was like, we need the labor movement. We need faith communities. We need uh, cultural groups. We need people from every background. And the way we're going to unite them, even though we might have all kinds of different ideas about many things, we're going to come up with a very simple basis of unity. Don't attack Iraq. No to racism, and no to racism, no to Islamophobia, no to anti-Arab racism, uh, no to like all the kinds of racism that were being whipped up at that time, and a defense of civil liberties. Right? Think about how familiar that is for the movement we have now. Right? In order to organize, we had to say defense of civil liberties. And not an abstract way, trying to organize mass demonstrations was a way of fighting for that in practice by occupying the space with initially dozens, then hundreds, and then thousands. And in the course of that, we managed to bring together people from all kinds of different backgrounds and traditions, but there was also a division of labor within that, right? We, a lot of us, as we were organizing, the basis of unity, the condition on which we showed up together was don't attack Iraq. But while we were building that audience, we wanted to talk about other things as well, right? So on many of those demonstrations, although the basis of unity was just focusing on Iraq, because a lot of people at the time didn't even know, you know, where is Iraq in the Arab world, or what, what is the history there? I, I only know about someone called Saddam Hussein, right? But on those demonstrations, we would have, we're going to have a Palestinian speaker to talk about what's happening in Palestine, to make the connection. Or we might have somebody who talks about, you know, a trade unionist to talk about how does Canada produce weapons that go to war, right? So the strategy was we're going to build a mass audience on a simple basis of unity, but we're also going to have a division of labor to raise the level of politics in the course of that. 
And there's lots of interesting things we can talk about about how we do that now. But what was so exciting about that moment is that as we got closer to the threat of war, the demonstrations were getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So by the end of 2002, there were tens of thousands, getting like into the 20,000, 25,000 range in early 2003. This was like freezing cold 2003, snow and ice everywhere. On February 15, 2003, there were between 80 and 100,000 people in Toronto. There were a quarter of a million people in Montreal on February 15th. It was the first time I marshaled a demonstration, was on February 15th. And I started off in what was then called Peace Square, Young and Dundas Square. But by the time the crowd's there, I was pressed up against the Eaton Center. I couldn't move, right? There was no need for marshals. It was just too big, right? It was just too big. And that's a mass movement, right? That is mass politics. And all this while we were organizing, the liberals who were in power at the time under Jean Chrétien was, you know, he had his foreign minister going to the UN, the United Nations. They were saying, don't worry, we're going to be with you in Iraq. You know, our job is to get that second resolution at the United Nations. And if we get that stamp from the UN, it'll be, you know, we'll all be able to bomb together. Right? That was the approach of Canada. We're going to organize everybody to bomb together. There were two warships, two Canadian warships in the Persian Gulf. There were troops about to get on planes to go. But on March 17th, two days after the second demonstration of a quarter of a million people in Montreal, Jean Chrétien stood up in the House of Commons, and, the and to the surprise of everybody, including his own caucus, he said, you know what, we can't get the second resolution, we're not going to pursue it, and therefore we won't go to war in Iraq. Now, that was a significant moment in our struggle, but we didn't stop the Iraq war, right? The Iraq war went ahead, and you know, the, the modest estimate is that a million people died, right? Two million, if you think about the sanctions, right? It, was, it, is, it remains horrific, and we're still feeling the reverberations of that. But imagine, think about our own enemy is at home. Imagine if every movement in every country around the world was big enough and power enough to stop its own state, right? If that was able to happen in the United States, that's how we could have stopped a war. And so the reason I want to harken back to that moment in 2003 is to raise our collective expectations to say these things are possible. We can stop a war. We can discipline our own state. We did it before. We've done it other times. And at this moment, the government's even weaker. It's a minority government. It's a weak coalition. The movements have come together more quickly than before. We already have 33 MPs who are saying ceasefire now. There's so much that we can do to, to go from thousands or tens of thousands to tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands. That's what we have to aim for. We have to know that that's possible and that what we do, thinking about those principles about making these movements accessible and inspiring and building people's confidence, we can achieve what we need to achieve. And our job is to discipline our state, not just for the liberation of Palestine so that Palestinians and the broader Arab working class can lead their own liberation without other states interfering in it, so that we can also win liberation for workers here to support the struggles for indigenous sovereignty, for the struggles against all forms of oppression, and for a truly emancipatory movement that all of us are a part of ourselves. Thank you. To end this episode, we'll hear a poem from Mason Gunny. Mason recited the poem at an October 25th vigil, 
which was organized by the Palestinian youth movement to mourn the many Palestinians who've been killed in the ongoing siege on Gaza by the Israeli military. This poem is called Rebel. I am the rebel. I am not a pawn in your game of empire. I am only the broken shackles of my people in Gaza. I am the rubble. I am not the caricature that moves on your diamond screens. I am only the home that you do not see as a home unless you are the one living in it. I am the rubble. I am only screaming at the top of my lungs, wide-eyed, sun-kissed hair, red-spotted shirt dotted with tears clutching desperately onto loose sheets of paper. I am the rebel. I am only imprisoned, fighting for the words of my people. I am only the curves of my Arabi that I was never taught, the nectar that pours from Teta's mouth onto paper. I am only her words that live for centuries in those old story books that you won't even let me hold. I am only the ashes of my home, the dust of my dreams. I am only the destruction you have carved into my mother's spine. It engulfs her and she feeds me. Your rage is mechanical. It turns the gears of your bulldozer. I am only the rubble that the cameras never get close enough to touch. I have stories imprinted on my skin. No matter how much I try to take the ink off my body and write it onto paper, you tell me I am not worthy, I am not human, I am a terrorist, I write hate, I write evil. You are evil, I and my Jeddo's namesake written on my wrist, waiting for this world to hear my breath. I sigh from inside the rubble and say, I am the rebel. My books are an army. I will carve myself onto the countertops of Teta's kitchen. I will etch my skin with tally marks of the days you left us caged. I will look up and say, Ya Allah, I am here. And they won't write my story. Keep me alive. I know that our stories will rebuild these creations. And I know that my ashes will scatter the world. Thank you.
you're part of an organization, please go to ceasefirenow.ca to see if your organization has endorsed the call for an immediate ceasefire, end to the blockade and restoration of humanitarian aid. If you don't see them there, ask the leaders why not and encourage them to join the growing coalition. You can also use the email your MP tool on the website to pressure your elected representatives. If you're listening to this on the day it's released, November 11th, please come out to one of the many Ceasefire Now rallies being held across the country on November 12th. You can find a list of these events under the Find a Local Event tab on the Ceasefire Now website. We also recommend following the Palestinian Youth Movement on Instagram and Twitter. This episode was recorded on the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples. It was produced by Spencer Bridgman, Carly McPhee, Everett Kiyu, Regin Hoylette, and me, Joshua Frame, with original music by Benjamin Bilgen. Lastly, to read and listen to more from Spring and find out how to join the Spring Socialist Network, please go to springmag.ca.